Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of InvestorIdeas.com podcast. In today's podcast, I interview Paul Rosen, CEO of 1933 Industries, trading on the CSE as TGIF and the OTC as TGIFF, where we discuss some of the recent trends in the cannabis industry, as well as expectations in the U.S. uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, So today I'm talking with Paul Rosen, CEO of 1933 Industries. Paul, it's great to be able to talk to you. Uh, So for any of the listeners who are unfamiliar with your background, you've been a pretty seasoned entrepreneur in the cannabis industry. Mm. Could you maybe talk a little bit about sort of your journey from the start of getting into the industry to where you are today with 1933? uh, Great to be here, first of all. Thanks so much, Taylor. Um, So my arc is, uh, like all of us, a little unconventional. Everyone's story is unique. Um, my career is I, I'm an attorney. I practice constitutional law in Canada, where we both are, um, for about seven years way back in the 1990s. Um, but I was always built for business, uh, and I had moved on from law, uh, which I still rely upon. I'm not one of those former lawyers that talks badly. I love that profession. It made, made Whatever I am, it's because of that. Uh, but I really like business a great deal. Um, and so I was running, starting my own companies, primarily in fabrication and design, passions of mine, and uh, happily running those companies, uh, which, are, which are two of them being around for 20 years plus, uh, one in particular. Um, and then in 2012, along came cannabis uh, in Canada. And I really was excited. The reason I was excited was because I'd been a cannabis enthusiast. That's just a fancy name for a user for, for most of my adult life. And I had always thought that it was a superior product, if you will, uh, because I, I found that it could, for me, um, achieve a whole bunch of things, help me focus, uh, be creative, um, reduce anxiety sometimes. Um, so I wasn't unfamiliar with cannabis at all, quite the opposite. I was quite familiar. It had been part of my life or lifestyle for decades. Uh, and so I didn't have to speculate as to, is there an economy here? I was part of the economy, if you will, the underground economy. Um, so I got involved. I was a co-founder and president and chief executive officer of uh, a company called Pharmacan Capital Corp. First called Hortican, then went public under Pharmacan, and then it was corporate rebranded to the Kronos Group in 2016. And at the time I was the president and CEO, which is about four years, I, I acquired, if you will, I think all of our Canadian assets, which are, I think, the core assets of the company, but really learned a 
tremendous amount about the industry. I, I did it from the top of the boardroom all the way down to the not the bottom, but to the grow room. I was the uh, SPIC, the senior person in charge for Canadians. That's wow. the designation that in the zone, uh, not far from you. So I had sort of uh, experience both in the boardroom and the grow room, which I think is essential. Um, and I've been super active in the space uh, since that day in 2012. That was meant to be a side hustle. And I had to basically restaff myself at my at my company. Uh, fortunately, I have a great partner who stepped into the breach and did a better job than I probably ever did. So, But I, I've literally, it was like the gravitational orbit of the cannabis industry was so overwhelming. Once I got sucked into that black hole, I could not escape, uh, like escape velocity in physics. I was in there and I love it. And I've been doing, I've done so many, I think, cool things or been a part of so many cool things uh, in multiple countries, multiple approaches. Um, and now I'm the CEO of 1933 Industries. It's the third uh, public company that I've been CEO of in the cannabis industry. And uh, my enthusiasm for the industry is at an all-time high right now, today, real-time at uh, 207 Eastern Standard on February the 11th. Right on. So, I mean, that's going to lead into what I want to talk about anyways, which is there's a lot of people who have uh, kind of an all-time high sentiment with the cannabis industry right now. There's a lot of hype that you haven't seen for the last maybe two years. A lot of, uh, there's been a lot more negative press and I think there's been positive over the last couple of years, whereas now you're starting to see that turn around. Could you maybe talk to specifically what's got you so excited about this industry again right now and what sort of changes you're seeing that are sort of gaining optimism again? Yeah. I mean, my optimism was never displaced, but I will say it's easier to maintain that optimism when you're, you don't feel like you're howling alone into the wind. I really didn't have any doubt. I, cannabis is a young industry, so it's already gone through sort of operatic cycles of uh, peaks and then pull, pullbacks. And this is typically should be expected of an early stage industry. But we, what we should say is the thesis around cannabis has only gone in one direction, and that's straight up. So we got to separate the day-to-day fickleness of investor sentiments versus what's actually happening with the economy of cannabis. And what has happened with the economy of cannabis since Colorado, Canada, Washington State, and even Uruguay were early on on the legalization road is um, month after month of sales growth, period, almost without interruption. And so, and we're not talking modest, we're talking about big CAGR compounded annual growth rates, returns for our industry. That never stopped. Even in COVID, it accelerated. So I think that my what's happening now is very exciting uh, because the industry has re- regained. Uh, it's very popular right now amongst uh, all sorts of investors. I think that's appropriate. I think it deserves that interest. And I think that you can look back at those bearish periods and see them as buying opportunities. I know I did. Not, Of course, I wish I bought more. That's the way it is with investing. Yeah. But I, I never doubted um, at a macro level that the thesis around the immense potential of the commercialization of cannabis was ever under any distress. Individual companies were under distress, but big, you know, C commercial or big, big M macro, the industry has been performing above and beyond anyone's even most optimistic uh, projections. So, and we're, the reason I'm so excited is we're, we're still young. We're still, we have a lot of fill-in. There's a lot more dollars available to this industry across state, across nation, across the globe. We can see there is now an almost um, irrevocable momentum towards cannabis reform at a global level. 
So we're going to look back at today's cannabis economy, notwithstanding all the hype around it in a decade from now and realize how small it still was. It's going to get much bigger. Now, again, the fates and fortunes of the digital companies, that's, that's startup culture. Of course it is. That's early stage company building culture. But the overall thesis around cannabis is unfurling the way it was predicted. And if anything, bigger and better and faster. But we're still early. And people, you know, they use these baseball analogies. I forget that. We're early in the measure of how many flags can you put up on a, on a global map right now? How many countries? How many states? have adopted a medical program? If so, is it teeny tiny restrictive or is it more uh, broad? Have they even experimented with the possibility of bringing adult use or recreational into the, the, the vernacular, the body politic? And you can see um, they're all going to turn. Every There's going to be, in my view, and I would bet, you know, um, a fair amount of chips if I could find, you know, a, a counterparty is that there's going to be just a, a tiny handful of countries in a decade from then that don't have cannabis programs. And those are going to be essentially, you know, and I'm not even sure, but those, you know, I would say like the most autocratic com- countries, but even they, I expect, are going to embrace it. And why shouldn't they? It's win, win, win for every stakeholder that's associated with the cannabis economy. It's win for the patient, win for the consumer, win for the government, Win for social justice, win for people that have been incarcerated, um, win for employers, win for employees, uh, win for ultimately providing um, net social gains, meaning that we've seen trends that are really encouraging, like as uh, more dispensaries are available, opiate addiction is going down. Alcohol use, not okay, COVID spiked alcohol use, but until then, alcohol use was giving up market share to the cannabis industry. And I'm going to argue from a public welfare perspective, cannabis is such a superior product to alcohol. It's there's really no debate on that. It is not a poison. It's actually good for you, not just feels good. It's good for you. So um, the market has knows that now and is um, creating a huge amount of excitement around the industry, which just ignites my own excitement, which never really waned in the first place. Yeah, I definitely agree with a lot of your sentiment there. I remember trying one of my first cannabis beverages early on at a convention. And the first thought I had was like, this is going to take over the entire world. Like, why, why are we going to have anything else once you get this into the populace and it's available at a store? That's it. Like the so many industries are going to have to join up or be involved in some fashion because it's just vastly superior, as you said, to a lot of the products that we have out there, whether you're looking at recreational products or even medicinal products. Yeah, the the so-called once in a lifetime opportunity is a chance to help build an industry that inevitably is going to attract the attention and potential market weight of big pharma and big CPG, but to be able to build defendable assets before that happens writ large. It's already happening. Yeah. I mean, you can see Constellation or Altria or Unilever uh, or Sandoz Pharmaceutical with Telray. You'll see this, but very at a very low level right now yeah and so that gives us entrepreneurs or executives or investors the opportunity you know you couldn't do this like if you wanted to to start in like um 5g you wouldn't you know i've got a 5g startup i wouldn't bet against any entrepreneur with an idea and and hustle but let's just be honest you're you really it's going to be quite challenging because you're going to be competing if you will if they have like a 5g spectrum auction which they did unless you got billions of dollars, you're not participating in that auction without 
So, but cannabis, we've been able to have because of the uh, reputational fear that big pharma and big CBG have had, we've been able to have accessible entry points for entrepreneurs and investors um, in an industry that has only seismic growth in front of it. Absolutely. So you did start out sort of more in the Canadian market and now 1933, more based in Nevada. Could you maybe talk about some of the specific advantages of the Nevada market and maybe of what you're seeing in the U.S. market? There's, again, tons of speculation around legal reform over the next few years. Um, so a lot of excitement in U.S. companies is now kind of back up to, to the tops because of that. Yep. Great. Um, I've been very active in the U.S. markets myself since 2014. I sat on the board of Ianthus for a while. I've made multiple investments into U.S. operators. So I, I definitely uh, started moving my focus uh, to the U.S. quite a few years ago, uh, in large part because it was just behind where Canada was. And so I really believe uh, some of my best outcomes have been, been, have been a result of being early in a jurisdiction or an asset class associated with cannabis. And I proved that in Canada along with many other people. And so began to rotate my attention and my capital to emerging jurisdictions, the most compelling of which was the United States probably still is today. Um, and so I've invested over you know my investment uh, you know, cycle into a lot of the well-known MSOs, most of the big names. Um, and I did make a meaningful investment in 1933 and 2018. I like Nevada a lot from the macroeconomics of the cannabis economy. And so what those macroeconomics are, uh, just to take us back to grade 10 economics, is uh, prices correlated to supply and demand in a market. And Atlanta, uh, Nevada has been a market where the uh, Cannabis Control Board, as it's called, uh, has been... Um, more discretionary in the granting of licenses, less administrative. So it has far fewer licenses than other states, such as uh, Colorado or Washington State. Um, and those states have done great. It's not to say having a lot of licenses isn't good. In some ways, it's great because you create even greater outcomes because competition creates an in innovation. But just on the supply-demand economics, I, I like Nevada because it was what we might sometimes refer to as a limited supply state. On the other hand, um, when you brought in the introduce the velocity of tourism, it had a remarkable demand. So if you just did it, what is the total addressable market to population? And you factored in tourism in a regular pre-COVID economy, and then you sort of uh, triangulated that with available capacity, you know, you could generate a meta number just to try to do that analysis. And then the, the number was higher than most states and remains so, in my opinion. And one thing we've learned during COVID is that Nevada wasn't as dependent upon the tourist market as we had thought. There's a very healthy domestic market there, but no doubt when tourism comes back, it goes back to supply demand. It won't bring the, let's say that tourism returns to normal in Nevada in six months from now, which is going to literally... Yeah more than double the total addressable market. There will not be a two times response in available capacity. Just can't do it that way. So I like Nevada a lot. I also like that it's proximate to California because uh, we see that as of course, not we meaning like the international consensus is it's a great market eventually. It still has some things to work out in terms of it's overtaxed and there's yeah. some regulatory challenges, but the market's incredible. The participation rate is incredible and you really are able to build brand awareness for into California from Nevada. Uh, when Nevada is going as a regular market, it becomes like Los Angeles on weekends. There's a huge back and forth. So 
where it is, I, I, I like it a lot. Um, so there's a lot of things. I think, I, I mean, I like all states, to be honest. If you've got a good, a well-run company, doesn't make a difference. I just like being in the cannabis industry because of all the growth potential. But Nevada, again, if you scorecarded some of the supply, demand, economics, it would be favorable. As to legalization, you know, we're going to see, um, uh, I predict, and I am far from uh, alone on this. This is a consensus point of the thought leaders in our industry that we're going to see a series of incremental congressional initiatives succeed in the next in this Congress sometime in the next 24 months before midterms and. You, we all know these acronyms like they're like they're the names of our pets. There's the Safe Act, the States Act, yeah. the More Act, and Safe as a Banking Act. Uh, state states um, is more or less federal immunity, and more is more social justice. It's not exactly that way, but that's a way to look at it. But they all bespeak of the same trend, which is a realization that you've got a dysfunctional system which has no um, policy objective associated with it. Cannabis is wildly popular on both sides of the aisle. It's not a Republican Democrat issue. It's not a blue red issue. It's not a college educated versus working class issue. It's popular with everybody. And there's multiple Republican states that are cannabis states now, including soon to be Texas and the middle, if you will. So the political well uh, amongst the citizenry is overwhelmingly in favor of cannabis reform for so many reasons not the least of which is the social justice is let's stop arresting people for this insane. Yeah. Uh, and let's let everyone that is in jail for this, you know, more or less uh, into an amnesty, but also because um, states could use the hit to their treasury. Uh, it's not going to balance their books overnight, but it's going to help uh, people that work in an unregulated underground economy can now work in a regulated economy economy, you know that's better for workers' rights and workers' protections. Um, patients and consumers can have confidence that it's sanitary, sanitized, standardized-ish product, uh, properly labeled, um, and we can let uh, product innovators come continue to innovate and make great form factors. So it's going to happen. Uh, exactly what is the chronology, which of those congressional initiatives is passed first, I hope it's the SAFE Act because the Banking Act would be the most transformative as one single piece of legislation for the development of the industry because it would most likely of those three initiatives bring in a torrent of new capital. But any one of them will have the same effect. It's yeah. just that the effect would be more pronounced with SAFE. As to legalization, well, it's coming. <laughs> you know, it's it's coming. The question, I think, is how, what is it going to look like? And the question to drill down to is where is cannabis going to show up on the uh, schedule under the Controlled Substance Act? Right now, as we know, it's Schedule 1, which essentially means great risk, no benefit, just to simplify what that means. Yeah. And then Schedule 2 would be risk with benefit. And then Schedule 3 would be low risk, high benefit. And then deschedule is just coca-cola you don't need a any sort of a license or it's just a general product as long as it meets food safety you're fine so we would argue i would argue um that descheduling is the would be outstanding that would be an incredible outcome uh, i would argue that rescheduling to schedule two um is both uh, has some positive and some risk associated with it because it brings the FDA into the review process. And it's likely that a lot of our facilities maybe wouldn't meet FDA standards. So there's probably going to be some 
um, work to do if that's the case. Um, the status quo, it should be said, is not obviously slowing this industry down. And in some sense, it is providing those moats that I referred earlier. So if I could, you know, have my druthers, I would say um, deschedule cannabis, take it right out of the Controlled Substances Act, pass those legislations, and uh, reap the benefits of a, a dynamic industry that favors virtually every constituency that causes little to no social harm. Yeah, that'd be a, a very ideal scenario. Um, there's been something that I've been seeing where you're starting to see some speculation around if there is more federal guidelines surrounding cannabis, this could also impact the CBD industry, which has gone kind of unregulated somewhat in the US. Mm. It, it's kind of just been the, you can put it in kind of whatever you feel like and kind of not have to go through a lot of the due diligence you have to in the cannabis sector. And you've seen in Canada, CBD is actually quite slowed down because it's constantly compared exactly the same as cannabis. So you're not yeah. seeing the same sort of CBD sales and growth in the Canadian market. Well, it's right a controlled now. substance in Canada. Exactly. So. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so I was know. just wondering, is there, is there any speculation that because of changing some of the cannabis uh, reform in the U.S. could affect the CBD market, or do you think that'll stay relatively untouched? No, I think the in we're talking about the United States. Yeah. I think that regardless of what happens around cannabis, this FDA is going to clarify the rules around CBD imminently. They're okay. there. Uh, they, they've indicated, they've studied it. They're just waiting for a, if you will, uh, clarification. Can you? Is it a food additive? straight up. Can you add it to food? Is it a nutraceutical product? Um, and so I do believe that the reason why I'm confident of that is business, government is uh, essentially, not to be too Norm Chomsky about this or Norm Chomsky about this, but government is essentially, you know, in the pocket of big corporations. They're require upon their massive lobbying dollars and the reality. action committees it is and um one could opine on at another venue whether that's good or bad i have my own opinion that it's not great however that is the world we live in and uh, and so the relevance of that is um i have no doubt that it's you know coca-cola would love to have cbd in, in a beverage as would pepsico as would Keurig, dr pepper as would Unilever, as would Procter & Gamble, as would Kraft Heinz. And so they're not, it doesn't threaten their industry, if you will. On the other hand, uh, Big Pharma may still look at psychoactive cannabis as a threat. So they would likely be lobbying against it until they feel that they're in a position where they can move in on it. So I think that there's different political pressures that are being brought to bear. And then if you bring in the agricultural component of hemp-based CBD, then you're talking about agriculture, you're talking about Kentucky and Tennessee yeah. and North Carolina. And so, you know, Mitch McConnell is pro-hemp because he comes from Kentucky and it's a cash crop for their state. So I think that the political economy and the political calculations are quite different. And one, one will always further the other, but they're going to operate more or less autonomously, although the secular trend will be reform in both. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I guess one other thing that's been hitting somewhat the cannabis industry only recently, but it was something that's kind of been all over the investment news was there was obviously the big craziness of GameStop and the Wall Street bets. Mm -hmm. Now you're starting to see that same group focus on the cannabis industry. There was some speculation around that following Tilray re recently. Um, I guess 
with just this new investor world now, there's, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of changes over 2020. There was a lot of differences in how people invested. You saw moving away from traditional hedge funds, lots of different trends that are interesting to watch. Is this a good thing for the cannabis industry or is this potentially uh, another, you know, sort of negative spill that could put, uh, you know, descending opinions on this industry, even at its most optimistic? I think it's an unequivocal good thing. Um, there you, go. you know, um, the there's a there's an interesting area in the, you know the the aggregation of power for the usually disempowered retail investor is an yeah. interesting idea. Uh, on the other hand, I, I've watched some of those um, Reddit threads. Uh, it was impossible. Anyone that's paying attention couldn't yep. help but watch it. It was it was really fascinating, historic. I might even say, but at the end of the day, uh, people are free to uh, invest according to their own strategies. And the idea that we would prevent retail investors from talking amongst themselves is foolish. But why it's good is that um, the more people that are buying our securities, the more the securities are going to potentially appreciate in value, the more they appreciate in value, the more we're going to be able to raise capital, the more we're going to be able to raise capital, the more we're going to, be able to deploy the capital. So it can only be good for the industry. Uh, you know, volatility is always a bit scary, but that is uh, what it's like in an emerging asset class. 1933, you know, as an example, we did a bot deal this week, taking advantage of a nice move up in our stock price to, um, compared to a week or two ago, lower our cost of capital. Now we are confident with that capital, we'll be able to make some expansions and improvements of our facility, increase our top line, increase our bottom line. So just using us as a proxy, um, we saw a window opened and it gave us uh, optionality that maybe we wouldn't have had before that window opened. We were trading more than 20 million share, shares a day this week, which is a big number for our company, big number for any company, to be honest. Yeah. Now, I don't know that that was games, you know, um, the GameStop crowd or the AMC crowd, um, but um, it's good when I look, see our volumes up, I'm excited whether the stock's moving up or down, more excited when the stock's moving up. But ultimately our industry requires a lot of capital and it's easy to raise capital when there's excitement around your asset class than it is when there's a bearer sentiment and having excitement from retail investors uh, is excitement none the same. And yeah. they can, they, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. Like I'm not saying that they were right on GameStop that it should be go away to a thousand dollars, but they may quite be right about cannabis. They may get over their skis and overpay one day. And, but that's investing. Who hasn't, who hasn't regretted almost every trade they've made? Oh, I sold too early. Oh, I sold too late. Oh, I invested too early. Like it's, there's, you can, perfection is impossible when it comes to buying and selling stocks. You're, maybe for high frequency trade algorithms. So it's a good thing. It's 1933 is, has benefited in a way that has no uh, um, reputational taint or, or funkiness, quite the opposite. It was uh, as the excitement in our industry has raised, has increased our stock prices have appreciated and uh, many of us have taken advantage to raise capital, including 1933. And so we're pretty excited about how this week has unfolded. I'm just super excited about the whole industry, but I really believe 1933 is a good exemplar of um, what could be a high growth stock. That's my belief. I purchased our recent uh, private placement. I was a participant, like I am on virtually every capital raise we do. So I vote with my wallet in terms of how I think that company's fortunes are lining up. Um, uh, No one could ever guarantee a result or an outcome when it comes to a stock, but certainly uh, I vote 
uh, in favor of that company with my wallet and as recently as yesterday and will likely continue to do so because I think the company has uh, a lot of growth in front of it if it executes well and I'm confident we're going to execute well. So that was something I was going to touch on earlier when you were discussing uh, the Nevada market specifically. Um, so obviously that was kind of the big, not really uh, like surprise, but it was a, a good benefit of, of how things turned out where, you know, people were worried about Nevada that's so dependent on tourism in the past. And it really did rally very well within the cannabis sector over the last year, you saw great sales numbers, you saw great growth potential in lots of companies, lots of them adapting quickly to delivery. Um, so I guess with all of the sort of changes that happened over the last year, and now anticipating that there could be, you know, renewed tourism, maybe in the next couple of months, or maybe by year's end, how do you sort of anticipate or start, start planning for that huge new demand that could be coming into your market? And jumping on top of the already growing demand you're experiencing because again, sales month over month, they are going in one direction. It's straight up. And yeah. how, our, do, our how January, do you, our January, 2021 was better than our January, 2020. I predict our February will be and, as well. And and, and that's if what our, everyone's our March, seeing. No, if our March isn't, I will have to resign because March was a terrible month last year, but the, you know, COVID was so many challenges and so many multi-dimensions and uh, we'll start by saying if your um if your health was not impacted and your personal economics were not destroyed any other observation about the challenges you faced are weak compared to the people that have faced real challenges with that being said it did put the cannabis economy in nevada on its heels when they closed the dispensaries that was uh yeah really hard but what has happened in 1933 is one example but by no mean the only example is we had to uh, look for efficiencies where maybe in a slightly more robust market we weren't paying not to say we weren't paying attention but it forced us with a certain urgency that maybe wasn't there to really look for efficiencies so we've certainly lowered our spend probably more than we would have but for that pressure and i'm glad that we did because we're a better company for it um and we have rebuilt our sales from the low of you know month by month i think we've had several successive growths in sales uh, five maybe six months in a row certainly uh that trend is positive and then to answer your question we do anticipate that there's going to be an increase in the demand pie and there's two ways that we can improve our business one is we might expect higher prices for our products it's not unreasonable but we also have the ability to increase our capacity one of the use of proceeds on the raise we completed that the bot deal that we announced at close of market yesterday was facility improvement and expansion so we are um for example, we have in our current, we are currently operating a 67,000 square foot grow and it's largely built out, but we have room in that grow for another 80 lights. And if we were created, probably another 120 lights. I, we own a building right across the parking lot, which is 12,000 square feet, uh, which is currently not being used. Uh, we could grow, we could turn that into an additional cultivation facility. And that's something that I would like to do, you know, just have to make sure the market economics are there to make sure we can move all that product. If we could, the economics, the unit economics are really favorable. That second building is of interest um, because large, it would have a much higher density of uh, canopy to overall building because it wouldn't need to duplicate uh, drying, processing, trimming, trimming packaging that already exists in a larger building. So we are, you know, we're fortunate in a position where we do have the ability without having to go buy anything uh, with a little bit of infusion of CapEx to grow our current capacity in flour. Flour is the number one form factor in Nevada. It's 62% of the market and it's going nowhere. And we produce, a, in my opinion, one of the highest qualities indoor 
craft flour or THC contents are typically 27% and above all the way into the 30s. So we can both anticipate hopefully higher prices and higher margins when tourism comes roaring back. And we also would be in a position to expand our production capacity with relatively speaking a modest amount of additional capital. That's good to hear that if you're prepared for, for sort of every eventuality. Uh, so speaking towards the craft flower market specifically, then um, it's something I've started to notice is picking up in Canada very gradually, um, but it's starting to be there as far as consumer trends, which is paying attention to overall terpene profiles of these strains. And you're starting to see the consumer IQ um, surrounding cannabis flower go upwards. Is that something you're starting to see translate into the Nevada market and how does that sort of change anything when it comes to how you maybe label your products or how you sort of decide which strains to bring to market? Yeah. You know, the, I can argue as to how I think the market should evaluate products, or I could tell you how does the market evaluate products. The market evaluates products by how much THC is in them. Yeah, I know that that's, that, like I said, that tends to be the, the general trend. I've only mm-hmm. noticed that it's starting to, you're starting to see a little bit of variation, not a lot, but the consumer IQ is going upwards where people are a little bit more aware that there's other factors involved. Uh, other than THC content, which affects their endocannabinoid system. Exactly. I, I would agree with that. As a user, I, I agree yeah. with that. I don't always want the highest THC strain. Um, I have involvement with other companies that embrace that thesis of low dose. And so I think that, um, but specifically, we have made changes to our strain selection uh, over the last several months to um, generate higher THC, higher um output strain. So bigger yield, higher THC. Um, And I think that is the market that uh, is going to be, whether we agree, whether it's the best way to evaluate a product, it's a way. And I don't think it's a flawed way, but I would sometimes say, well, you wouldn't go do a wine or a a spirit store and say, Hey, I want the best tequila, you know, the one with the highest alcohol in it. Yeah. It would be, they would say that actually that's a lower shelf product, if you will. Um, what you're buying as a whole integrated experience. Uh, so I think cannabis is inevitably going to find that it can be in both of those markets. That high THC market is going nowhere. It's just okay. not, it's too entrenched, at least for the, our, at least for this generation. Um, yeah. And a lot of people will say, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I prefer, I just love it. So that's what I want. And that is going to be, I still think the number one KPI is to how you evaluate flower. But yeah, I do look, I do see that as our consumer or our patient gets more educated, has more anecdotal experience. They may say, no, I, I'm okay with a more of a balanced, you know, experience. Yeah. Um, I'm really, what, where I do think there's um, an under emphasis is on terpenes. Um, yeah. Terpenes are, have a, um, very uh, profound effect on user experience very profound effect and if people complain of anxiety when they consume cannabis is probably being found in the terpene profile more than the thc content so i think what we're going to do is as an industry is we're going to finally have the ability to study this plant in a way that until recently was prohibited and we're going to unlock i I see the plant as an uh, as an organic object of technology that can be mined for all sorts of tech uh, and those tech are different ways to combine the elements to create innovative products and formulations for medicine. And we're very early on that because we're just recently allowed to study the plant. So we're going to get the quality. I predict very confident that we're going to have higher quality products. And how do I measure quality? Quality is simply uh, delivering the expected outcome to the patient or the consumer. 
It doesn't mean it's stronger. It means it's did exactly what I wanted it to yeah. do. That's a high quality product. For some people that is, wow, I'm, you know, looking at my hands for two hours. Great. God bless you. We love you. Uh, I've, I've been that person too. For other people, it's something very different. What we are going to improve is our ability to deliver predictable outcomes, which is to me, if you have a product that meets sanitation standards, that's labeled properly, and that gives the user exactly what you want, then you finally have a perfect cannabis product. One of the things that I've found the most fascinating is, and you've only seen this on a small scale, has been the people who are talking about, you know, really mapping, having to do basically a personal genetic test to find out what you're most susceptible to as far as specific terpenes, specific cannabinoids, um, and then matching you genetically to a strain. Do you think that that's, that future is, you know, 20 years away, or is that a little bit closer? And And is that kind of the the end game you're going to see where you are going to get that guaranteed. Listen, I want to feel like this. We get you a genetic test. You find three strains that 100% nail it every time for you. Is that kind of the reality? Yeah. I don't think that's science fiction. You know, I don't think that's uh, star Trek kind of stuff. I think we're, 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 we're moving that. I've seen some of these products. Uh, I've seen, you know, essentially like, um, a version of a spit test to determine some yeah. genetic profile and then to match the, what we need to do is perfect the consistency in the grow room. That's the biggest challenge to accomplish that, whether it's using just improved growing techniques or better genetics, or even maybe in some instances, considering biosynthesis or chemical synthesis to develop cannabinoids until you can have, you know, like a standardized outcome because it's very real time. Like anyone that has, spent time in grow rooms understands that uh, the flower you get from the top of the bud is different than the flower you get from the middle. When you regrow the same strain next cycle, it's going to come out slightly different. And so there are some sensitivity limitations to just how predictable, but we don't, what we just need to do is, you know, if we could be 80% of the right, 80% right, 80% of the time, we'd be doing great. We're not there yet. And so, you know, alcohol, even alcohol, um, you know, it's everyone, people have had this experience. I'm drinking and I'm not, nothing's happened. I can't sort of catch a buzz. Other people have had the same person another day. I've had one drink and I'm a little intoxicated. So there's, there is all this sensitivity towards how it's like stasis of your body right now, consistency, but whether we can get there to the point of like mathematical certainty, no, I just don't think the world works that way. Chaos theory, entropy, whatever you want to call it, exists. But we're going to get to the point where we greatly reduce the incidence of predictable outcome and greatly reduce the incidence of unexpected outcomes. So you touched on it there briefly, and it's just one thing I'd like to expand upon a little bit, which is um, there is kind of the ongoing debate in the cannabis industry of the kind of natural whole you know, plant um, being in its very much its organic natural state versus the very much biosynthesized um, sort of chemical control isolate version of the industry. Where do you sort of stand on that? Do you think that there'll it'll have to be a combination of both where you're going to be have to, having to use some very advanced, you know, sort of genetic manipulation and control factors in combination with traditional growing or is it going to separate kind of into two different sections, you know, your, your isolate and your natural plant. Yeah. That's a, that's a meaty question there, Taylor. (laughs) Why don't you just throw me a softball towards the end of our interview there? Um, (laughs) I think uh, the answer is a bit of both. So we all know the, the gospel around the entourage effect and full spectrum. Yeah. 
I don't think that's wrong at all. I think that full spectrum uh, just makes intuitively makes sense to me. Um, the same way when I eat vegetables, I often try to eat the whole vegetable, uh, not just, not just the tasty parts, because there's all sorts of nutritional benefit across of it. On the other hand, um, I will say that big pharma, as they've search, source for APIs to bit develop. Uh, novel medications or to use as inputs are going to be challenged by the unpredictability of full spectrum. And yeah. they're going to likely want to have more stable, consistent isolate. In fact, I would take that to the even a, a further level to say I would anticipate that the real potential of biosynthesis and chemical synthesis is to feed APIs to big pharma. Not so much that I think people are going to want to go to their local dispensary and say, I want to buy some of that biosynthesis yeah. THC made from mold. Um, I think the plant's perfectly adequate to mostly address the plant in its current form with the type of tech improvements I believe are imminent, already happening, is perfectly suitable to address, to, to provide the vast majority of the inputs for the recreational market, whatever you want to call it, the nutraceutical market. But I do think that the APIs are going to be very different for the hardcore pharmaceutical market. And that's where you're going to see an emphasis probably on isolate, and uh, synthesis. I guess in following of that, just in last sort of final thoughts, do you think that that will be uh, successful because of, you know, the, the amount of scrutiny, I guess, big pharma has been under in the last couple of years and is continuing along that trend with the emergence of psychedelics right now, um, with cannabis continuing to grow. There's a growing number of people who have a lot more skepticism towards traditional Western medicine, towards traditional big pharma. Um, do you think that that market will be able to, there will be a big enough market for these biosynthesized, you know, pharmaceutical grade cannabis products while alongside traditional cannabis products? Yes. Just in one word, yes, absolutely. I have no hesit, no doubt to say that. Epidiol, XGW, Jazz deal. This is just showing us canary in a coal mine. Um, these are big pharma uh, can't resist this. These are literally transformative novel medications that are going to have such a profound impact on public health. Um, and big pharma, you, you know, at some point maybe their view was we can, you know, just beat it through lobbying, but they're, they're going to have to find a path in. And I and, and they want to. I don't think that there's largely one large pharmaceutical company that isn't aware of the potential blockbuster, the, the eventual blockbuster potential of developing patented cannabis therapies for specific conditions, whether it's Dravet syndrome or ALS or Parkinson's or other things. So I think that um, Big Pharma is absolutely already in but they're going to be coming in uh, and developing more and more products that are already probably being pipelined right now. And inevitably, even though GW does grow their own indoor cannabis to feed them, I see for so many reasons that posing challenges to the mindset of big pharma. And I also say that the one thing, the one area where synthesis has potential to disrupt the plant-based economy is um its carbon footprint is so much lower than the cannabis industry. Yeah. And this, I think, is a meta trend. Is This is not something we can just slough aside. To me, if you were saying like cost-benefit analysis, why would I choose a biosynthesis product versus this God-given natural plant? Uh, you could marshal uh, reasons uh, for both sides, but the one argument that synthesis has that cannabis cannot compete with is um, it's environmentally much less hazardous. We don't, doesn't require anywhere near the amount of water and energy. 
uh, and waste yeah. disposal. So I do think that's that's not immaterial at all. And I think that um, not to say that big pharma wouldn't pollute the planet in pursuit of profits, they most certainly have and would. But I do think that the, the overall trend towards realizing that we have to take better care of our planet favors the development of the synthesis industry. But it's really the low-cost standardization that is going to be what attracts big pharma to sourcing APIs using th- synthesis. But then we also develop products that come from the plant. It doesn't have to be like, make your decision. Yeah, It's one or the other. But I, I definitely see the biosynthesis having a much more of a total addressable market in so-called big pharma than I do see it in the recreational market. Perfect. Well, uh, I guess just in my, my final question would be because you were so early to cannabis, um, obviously the next big thing is psilocybin, LSD, ketamine coming down the market at very aggressively, I would say even comparison to cannabis, you're seeing a pretty quick regulatory reform in lots of areas. The uh, entheogen, uh, sort of decriminalized nature movement, just Washington, D.C. was just uh, recently decriminalizing some of those things. Is that something you're paying attention to or is cannabis enough of your no, time I'm right now? More than paying attention, participating. Um, and I'll also circle back to personal experience I've had um, throughout my adult life. If I can include my teenage years as my adult life, uh, incredible, transformative, life-changing spiritual experiences uh, under the influence of multiple compounds that you just outlined. Uh, and it is, I've read just about every, not every book, but I've read a lot of great There's books. There's a lot of books. <laughs> I have. I mean, I read The Doors of Perception when I was 21 years old. Um, because I was, because uh, I was trying to understand what just happened to me, um, I didn't have any other place to go to. It was a great book, correct? Um, still is, uh, but yes, the case for we're, now we are talking about um, the most transformative um, modalities for mental health ever. Period. Yeah. I, I believe that anyone that has read How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan would understand what I'm talking about. Transformative. Um, Johns Hopkins has been studying it for decades. Uh, there's something great here. Now, is there also a lot of capital market promotion going on? Of course, that's, these things have to, these things, this is the way it always is, but this is so reminiscent of cannabis. Uh, it's like almost deja vu all over again. So I've been a pretty active investor um, and also uh, as an entrepreneur, I'm, uh, you know, doing my thing <laughs> that we do as entrepreneurs and look for value creation for all stakeholders. Um, so I'm super uh, involved and super active and super bullish. It's good to hear. I think uh, most people in the cannabis industry I know are, are in very similar agreement that this is uh, as exciting, if not more so, as far as the transformative nature you mentioned towards the field of psychiatry and just mental health in general. It's going to be uh could create a very crazy new world that makes this current uh, world seem very archaic. Yeah, I think that um, we're going to look back and we're going to see that cannabis was the Trojan horse. Uh, and then outside of that horse, I mean, cannabis knocked down the another would be like it knocked had a battering ram and knocked down the ramparts. But it has, uh, I'm stunned at the pace of societal change in terms of their views around uh, psychedelics um, and you know there was psychedelics only really became controversial during you know the um, the late 1960s when um, Timothy Leary and Abby Hoffman and started to like freak out Nixon to be honest and uh, essentially put a stop to what had already been a decades-long commitment towards advanced research in some world-class um, research institutes, including, as mentioned, Johns Hopkins. So I think that um, uh, it's incredibly exciting and it's really good for the world. And um, 
you know, for investors, it's attractive, but I'm not talking about investors. I'm talking about patients that are going to benefit immensely from uh, these therapies, whether they're dealing with um, a mortality crisis, uh, whether they're dealing with depression, PTSD, um, whether they're trying to stop other addictive behaviors that have caused a detrimental effect on their life. Uh, I think psychedelics are going to absolutely improve the world. And um, so this is, these things are working in concert. As we reformed attitudes around cannabis, it made it easier to reform attitudes around psychedelics as well. Yeah, the, the irony of it becoming the gateway drug, as it was always referred to, you know, in, in early <laughs> warning signals, you know, look out for cannabis, it'll make you do all these other drugs. I guess so. I guess that was, yeah. that was accurate, because <laughs> that is how it played no. out. It's it's there's some something to that. It was not the gateway drug as people had said. Like it yeah. did not spike. Uh, um, did not spike you, meth addiction. <laughs> right. No, I think there's enough data to say that you can correlate. It's hard to do studies without proper like just connecting data sets and drawing conclusions. Always risky, but you can say that uh, cause or effect or not, opiate addiction went down in areas that had dispensaries. Is that are these things connected? I I suspect they are can't prove it but note it but yeah, yeah it's a different gateway it's a it's a society it's a gateway for society to re-examine uh stale outdated and empirically negative uh prejudices around the psychedelic plant and so we're it's very exciting uh that um the world's discovering this is it do we're going to have a nation of people whacked out on um, psilocybin tea maybe is that going to be a better nation Maybe. Yeah, I, I would think so in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, you see not sure all... Work, not sure GDP will go up, but we'll have a great time. Yeah, that's that's the other uh, sort of downside to it, right? Is how do you get everyone to go work at McDonald's while they also have psilocybin tea? In... <laughs> I, think it'd be easy. I think it'd be easier. Maybe, potentially, right? At least it'd make it a little... At least I got something good to go home to. <laughs> Just be staring at the French fry fryer like, hey, I need my fries now. Stop staring at the fryer. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking today, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really, really informative. Thank you so much. Thank you, Taylor. Really appreciate your time and your audience. Bye, all. Thank you. Once again, that was Paul Rosen, CEO of 1933 Industries, trading on the CSC as TGIF and the OTC as TGIFF. That's all for today's podcast. Enjoy the rest of your day. That's all for today's podcast. Podcast is now a certified word trademark on the blockchain through Cognate Incorporated CM certification. InvestorIdeas.com podcasts are also available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, and TuneIn. If you'd like to be a guest or sponsor of this podcast, please contact InvestorIdeas.com. InvestorIdeas reminds all listeners to read our disclaimers and disclosures on the InvestorIdeas.com website, and this podcast is not an endorsement to buy products or services or securities. Investors are reminded that all investments involve risk and possible loss of investment. Investor Ideas does not condone the use of cannabis except where permissible by law. Our site does not possess, distribute, or sell cannabis products. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.